Hello, Gregor. Hello, Edgar. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. So, what are we going to talk about today on this podcast of discussions on psychoanalysis? Our subject for today is the theme of forgiveness from a psychoanalytic perspective. Well, it seems very interesting. We look forward to your comments and questions. You can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Or directly through the email discussionsonpsychoanalysis at pm.me. So let's go. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Danielsen. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Let's start with how did the idea of forgiveness become relevant to you, Edgar? The idea of forgiveness became relevant to me in a very convoluted way. I was always fascinated by rituals and symbols. I was always pondering the underlying issues or the underlying signified pointers in every ritual. And one of those rituals that became interesting to me was the ritual of the sacrament. It's a holy process, to put it in different words. The sacrament of confession, in which you have someone who is called a penitent, who has failed the community or God, and that person goes to a priest and verbalizes the ways in which they have failed either the community or God, and the person receives absolution or forgiveness. So that process, which is a relational process from my perspective, produces some kind of relief in the penitent. That's how I got into the exploration of forgiveness. It was through that kind of sacrament, that kind of process, which is someone who carries some guilt, goes to someone else, talks about the guilt, verbalizes it, and feels relief. I do remember reading somewhere many years ago some research in the Nordic countries in which they made a correlation between those who go to confession and the suicide rate, and they found out that it was lower among those who used to go to confession often. It's funny you're mentioning that because Durkheim became famous when he pointed out that suicide rates were lower in religious countries, not because they were actually fewer suicides, but because of religious convictions, people would make up suicides into normal or natural death. Mm-hmm. I think what you're pointing out is causality. So are we looking at lower rate or are we looking at the suppression of evidence that people were killing themselves? Now we're going to move to the first part of the podcast on forgiveness from a religious perspective. Edgar, could you try to distinguish for us how you understand the concept of forgiveness from a religious perspective? Well, in the religious context, we could define forgiveness as the process of integration in the community. 
or integration with the divine. Some people may call God. What I mean is this, someone who has failed the community or God, according to some rules defined by the sacred books of the community, the person verbalizes their failings and receives the absolution, the forgiveness, and that integrates the person back into the community. Or if we look into the wider context of a religious setting, it integrates the person back into the a connection with the divine, with God. So from that perspective, forgiveness leads to integration. I see. On the other hand, if we're talking about, for example, feelings of guilt or pain, the hurt experienced either by the community or the person who has failed the community, the process of forgiveness allows the healing or the lifting up of the guilt. Let's try to articulate the pros and cons of the religious understanding of forgiveness. How could we understand what is actually beneficial to a subject and what actually is not? If we're talking about what is beneficial for the subject, we should start with the lifting up of a sense of guilt. The person has failed, there's guilt that becomes a burden, and through the process of confession and then being forgiven, the person somehow is relieved. Or is supposed to be relieved. Yes, or represses even more. The second thing that we can think about is that the person belongs again to the community. So there is a reintegration. This is a social reintegration. It reminds me of how if you express shame for your sins, yes. then people will reintegrate you. Correct. If I'm talking from a religious perspective, I'm talking only from the Christian perspective. Yes. But I am I'm pretty sure there are some sorts of confessions in other religious traditions and outside the religious tradition. Otherwise, the group is not going to hold on together. Correct. You need to reintegrate the lost sheep. Yeah. Oh. Wow. You, you know that yes. phrase. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do. <laughs> so surprising of me. <laughs> Another thing that it's beneficial for the subject when we're talking about confession and then forgiveness, this happens in, in a very specific frame. The confessional is a space. Yeah, it's as if scenes were allowed to be a social reality. Yes, and uh, they can be verbalized in that space. When the church is open, you will always find some priest or pastor there that will listen to your sins. And then we move to what actually might be more problematic is what is it that you do with what you hear? From the perspective of the one who is offering absolution or forgiveness, that person is acting on behalf of an external agent, which in this case is God, the divine. In a religious setting, the expression of wrongdoing is and how you reach forgiveness is not done through a non-judgmental ear. It goes through the religious beliefs. Yes. To go through forgiveness, you have mm -hmm. to accept that you did wrong. You have to submit. When we're talking about an external agent, we have also to understand in the religious setting that there are some rules and texts that define how that external agent wants people to behave. And they have been defined by people prior those who believe. Well, that's what we know, and that's what happens. On the other hand, in the mind of many who go through the process of confession and then being forgiven, they have not broken rules of society. They have broken rules that were created by God. Mm -hmm. We need to hold this tension. Some people think that it's God who has created the rules, when yes. in fact it's the community the one that has created the rules. 
the communities that created the God. The God, That yes. they're referred to. Correct. Because our starting point is that God is, is a human creation. We start from that perspective. So if we're going to use some religious language, what we're saying is that instead of God creating humankind in God's image, we have created God in our own image. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it seems like in what you're describing in the religious process, forgiveness happens and creates repression, but the repression is due to external forces. They will be internal conflict and internal forces, but they are fed by external references. Yes. It seems like it does not really allow for a subjectivation process to happen. What do you mean by subjectivation? Well, in this case, in this case that you can't define yourself based on your values as unique to yourself. You exist as a subject of someone else or something else. Yes. I, I define the process of subjectivation as being the subject of oneself. You will be always, I, I believe, uh, castrated by the unconscious. There are always mm. be parts of you that you don't know. But that is not addressed by the religious understanding of forgiveness. No, it's In, not. You become the subject of God. Yes, and then therefore you have to conform to whatever rules the community or God, quote-unquote, God has created. It's not about understanding, it's not about the acknowledgement of the complexity, meaning that there are many gray areas, and therefore in the end it's about being forgiven by an external authority. Let's move now to part two, forgiveness from a psychoanalytic perspective. You have a religious background, but now you're practicing as a psychoanalyst. What, what do you think psychoanalysis did bring to forgiveness? And how do you think it became important in your practice? What the psychoanalytic frame brings in terms of forgiveness is that we are now in a setting where judgment is suspended. For example, when we ask the patient to speak as freely as they can, without censoring themselves. What we are saying, in fact, is that we hope that they won't judge themselves and therefore censor their, themselves. From the therapist's perspective, when we say that we listen to everything the patient is saying, hovering over all those words that, and silences that come from the patient, what we're saying is that we will suspend our judgment. It makes me think about the fact that the superego is often referred to as a social, or I would say the, how we integrate authority from outside. Correct. I mean, there is also the idea of a pre-oedipal superego, which I, actually I think is relevant too. But usually in therapy, we deal a lot with the superego and how we can't allow ourselves to say one thing, believe one thing, feel one thing or another. And it's interesting to think about how, yes, we are indeed asking people to turn off external mm -hmm. points of view and how the concept of forgiveness is allowing oneself to move from this external superego to maybe something that would be a superego that they would create on their own. Mm -hmm. That will be less judgmental, hopefully. Uh, I think that there is a need for a judgment, but the question is where does a judgment come from? In a psychoanalytic frame, we can easily be fooled in using the concept of forgiveness in actually a religious understanding and to use external judgments or to, even if we are not supposed to, and where it becomes really relevant is when we are able to create forgiveness, maintaining judgment, but a judgment that comes from within. 
mm-hmm. that comes from the patient himself or herself, and but still maintaining the judgment. I, I do think judgment is in, is important. We can't be completely judgment free, but the question is where do we judge from and to be able to forgive oneself, not because some divinity said that we could, but because actually we created a connection to ourself that allow us to move on. And maybe it can create a better repression, not a repression that is only due to external forces that we integrated, but due to internal forces that we developed. What you're saying reminds me of something I read, written by psychoanalyst Jamison Webster. She says that repression allows us to restart. We should also bring up the fact that the notion of forgiveness seems very present to resolve conflicts stemming from judgment we make today on actions or thought we had earlier on our life. In French, we talk about it as an après coup, which I believe is referred to in English as deferred action. Let's look at one possible scenario in the psychoanalytic room, and it's the patient who says, I cannot forgive myself. And then what comes after that statement is something that person has done to himself, to themselves, something the person has done to someone else, failings, etc. So my sense is that in the psychoanalytic room, in the session, when we have created the space for a non-judgment judgmental verbalization and non-judgmental listening. We're opening the space for the subject to acknowledge failings, but also to begin the working through. I think it's interesting to think about forgiving oneself in the psychoanalytic frame in opposition to or to articulate it with forgive someone else. I found often that in my practice, mm-hmm. people tend to forgive others because they don't want to forgive themselves. They carry the guilt. Mm-hmm. I found it very interesting to see how through the psychoanalytic work, our patients are often able to forgive themselves because they stop forgiving others, because they are able to understand what happened. I saw how, for instance, someone who could be molested as a child would blame him uh, or herself, or he or she did something wrong. They are the one to blame, that they teased the person, that if they had behaved differently, the abuser would not have reacted the same way. And I think the shift, when they are able to forgive themselves, saying, yeah, it was not my fault, I did not do that, then they can see their aggressor in a different way. They can understand what happened. They don't have to pretend it did not happen. Because I feel like maybe the, the problem in the, if we stay close to religious understanding of forgiveness in a psychoanalytic frame, is that the forgiveness pretends that things did not happen. Well, actually, to understand, acknowledge the existence of something. Mm-hmm. In fact, within the Christian tradition, those sins that have been forgiven are buried. Some people may quote the Bible saying, God will not remember those sins. Which is incredible for an almighty being. Yes, indeed. So, in the psychoanalytic setting, we are not saying that. I think the forgiveness in the psychoanalytic setting does not exonerate the aggressor but brings a full awareness to the person who suffered the aggression, a better understanding of why they are carrying some guilt connected to the aggression. 
as I was talking about different action, sometimes the aggressor is oneself mm -hmm. and to be able to look back at oneself and understand that, yes, you were that age, you were in such circumstances, we can distinguish ourselves from who we were and still maintain some continuity. That's where it will lead is the question of split that mm -hmm. comes without forgiveness. So let's talk a little bit about splitting. Some psychoanalysts have talked about forgiveness as the resolution of a splitting, meaning the integration of bad and good objects in the self. If we're looking at forgiveness from a psychoanalytic perspective, the working through the splitting is in fact what leads to a sense of being forgiven. One self is forgiven. The subject is able to move from splitting the good and the bad object to protect something that happened that cannot be dealt with into accepting to forgive oneself and then is able to reintegrate a different aspect of the experience. So as a summary, in the analytic setting, forgiveness is about understanding, is about acknowledgement of complexity, is about integration, resolution of the splitting, as we have said, and autonomy. It's not about being pardoned. It's about forgiving oneself, but not being forgiven by an external authority. But you still need to be recognized as a victim too. So there is an external authority that does not forgive, but allows the victim to recognize themselves as so. Let's move now to when forgiveness is made harder by psychoanalysis. Forgiveness for oneself, as we saw, cannot be reached when the aggressor is not recognized as such by a third party, because it creates a tendency to split and leaves victims in a state of stasis. This part of them will not move on. We need to distinguish two different approaches to psychoanalysis. The first one would be a non-normative approach that we illustrated in the previous part of the podcast. But there is also a normative approach to psychoanalysis, defined when theory is understood as the truth, or when psychoanalysis becomes some kind of a pseudo-religion. We all know that psychoanalysis can be used to help psychical integration, and that psychoanalysis is more of a non-normative one. The normative approach to psychoanalysis can be used to blame victims, to deny the experience. How do you understand this mechanism, Gregoire? I would say that psychoanalysis tools in such situations are not used to feel comfortable with the unknown and the fluidity of our psyche. But instead, what you see is that psychoanalysis is used to impose something of an external moral through the idea of something like a psychoanalytic truth. It's a moral that disguises itself. So I understand it as a very strong defense against hearing someone who has been the victim of an aggression, no matter the kind of aggression, actually. It can be just, in quotes, social pressure or direct physical attacks. It goes along with a trend in psychoanalysis that to forget the importance of what we call the social reality of each of us, as if we only were some kind of a mixed bag of drives and fantasies. In the normative approach, one focuses on the fact nothing is for sure because the unconscious contains one thing and its opposite. So people may say that the unknown leads towards victims being kind of suspicious for being victims. Statements such as, you put yourself in this situation, which might be true in some situations because, yes, we don't have full control of ourselves, but it becomes highly problematic when the aggressor is not confronted with the same suspicion. 
It's like when you are listening to women who might dress in what could be considered in a provocative way. And then you might hear arguments like maybe unconsciously she wanted to be raped. Well, mm -hmm. people will be more elaborated today because they know how awful it is, but that's how they will think. Yes. And that is very dangerous because maybe unconsciously someone might have had the fantasy to be raped. It doesn't mean that's only the fantasy they had. They might have had tons of other fantasies on the one hand. And on the other hand, it completely exonerates the aggressor's behavior. If one person among 10 or 100,000 people actually act out, maybe there should be something to look at in that person having a fantasy doesn't mean that someone else should act out on it yes if there was such a fantasy which if we take the hypothesis of the unconscious seriously is also a possibility that there were none yes because we don't know pretending that we know is siding with the aggressor correct what you are describing can be found in many different places yes and there is something specific about this happening in a psychoanalytic institute because the use of psychoanalysis as a legitimation of such attitude can make the difference even stronger Psychoanalysis can be used to legitimize an identification with the aggressor, the strong disdain for the victim, the weak. What do you think it stems from? I believe that, among other things, it stems from ill intentions, fear of the aggressor, but also identification with the aggressor. As such, our prayer to the aggression, but also from ignorance of the field, from a limited, concrete and normative understanding of psychoanalysis. Because in America especially, it happened in France too, but it didn't have as much success. There was something called ego psychology. And even if ego psychology was not all bad, the medicalized understanding of psychoanalysis it came with emphasized something of a power struggle. While at the same time in Europe, psychoanalysis had a lot of variety and allowed for very different ways to look at patients. I will just give an example of something that happened to me. I won't go into details, but I think there are some things that are interesting in the case of forgiveness and how in a psychoanalytic setting things can become even harder. So six years ago, I was assaulted by an instructor during a class. It was not just the usual confrontation of ideas that I have had before that and I had after that. So I reported to NPAP what happened in the next few days. I wanted to avoid the, in quote, why didn't you say something earlier? argument that victims often face. So the person who I talked to, to whom I insisted that no matter what the solution was to this situation, I did not want to have to deal with the instructor again, especially after this guy uh, don't play what happened to me in an email earlier. Yet, the person I talked to insisted that his dream was that we would shake hands in order to resolve that situation. I think that was an expression of, among other things, two important ideas. First, the difficulty for many people trained in psychoanalysis to take into account the social dynamics. In my case, the position of power of the instructor. The power should lead to more accountability, not more protection. So already based on that, to try to create an even field is highly problematic. Second, as we said earlier, how psychoanalysis can be used in psychoanalytic institution to deny to the victim the recognition of the harm that was done. There was a need, even though the assault was not a fantasy, to, in quote, resolve the conflict through discussions. And this came through as a process that led to no consequences at all for the instructor. And that's where being in a psychoanalytic institute, some power-oriented people will infantilize you. 
Talking about things like we do in analysis is helpful because the frame of the analysis is not involved. But when it is, like with the fees we discussed last time, the analysts can just work on the fantasies. Psychoanalytic institutes are not therapy. Institutes have the obligation to take actions. And I would like to quote something from Elie Wiesel. Not taking a stand for a victim is to support the aggressor. Gregor, as you went through these processes, uh, were you confronted with psychoanalytic arguments? Yes. I had to go through a, quote, discussion with my aggressor. In that frame, he was not questioned by the two other members that were there. I was. When it happened, I was a student at NPAP, but I was also already a practicing clinical psychologist from France. I already had more than 10 years of analysis behind me, so I could see that it was not as easy for them to throw at me the usual accusations that you're not enough analyzed, that maybe through experience you will understand better how good the instructor was. Well, my experience helped me understand how poorly he did at that moment, actually. But I was asked if I understood my responsibility in what had happened. Maybe I triggered him unconsciously. Well, maybe. And maybe not. We won't know. This forgets both the fact that people are not reacting on a simple arc reflex, that people have their own, quote, free will too. And it also forgets the power differential. So I gave them an answer that I think still stands today, which was that when you go to a Starbucks, sorry for Starbucks, I have nothing against them, and you ask for a coffee, and the person behind the desk just throws the coffee on your face. Were you responsible for what happened? Well, let me tell you, yes, you were, because you did ask for the coffee. And on the other hand, you were not at all, because you were not supposed to expect such a reaction. So when you're in a class and you discuss with an instructor, you're not supposed to expect for them to assault you. This leads us to the idea that if you want victims to be able to move on, to forgive themselves, you have to allow them to disidentify with the aggressor. We have to keep in mind how when someone is being assaulted, one of the defenses against this aggression is a partial identification with the aggressor. Mm -hmm. Because the situation is unbearable. You need to be in control. You try to survive. So when an institute does not recognize you as the victim and does not recognize the aggressor as the aggressor, it doesn't help the process of disidentification. It is not sufficient to get better to have an external recognition, but it is, I believe, necessary. On a different scale, after the genocide in Rwanda, aggressors were asked to hear their victims in public trials. It allowed victims of cruelty to be recognized in this position and to have the victims have a sense that the aggressors were also recognized as aggressors. And it actually helped the victims to move on. I think in South Africa, we had a similar process where in public trials, victims were able to express the horrors that they have had experienced at the hands of the oppressors. None of these processes are perfect systems, but they allowed, as you say, this identification with the oppressor and therefore the healing of the oppressed. Let's move on to the myth of Jonah. Jonah. 
the myth of Jonah has been explored from a psychoanalytic perspective. Freud, um, Eric Fromm, Carl Jung. And just to remind our audience of the myth of Jonah, we have a person, a prophet, and that person receives command from God. He's supposed to go to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, therefore the oppressor of Jonah's people. And God commands Jonah to go to that city, preach to them so that they can repent and align themselves with God. Jonah doesn't want to do that. He gets into a boat that goes in opposite direction to Nineveh. And there's a storm. And then Jonah feels very guilty because the storm is the punishment for his action. And they throw Jonah into the sea. This Jonah is eaten alive by a big fish and stays there for a few days. And that changes him. Who wouldn't be changed who by would such not, experience? Who would not be changed by something like that? And follows the command to go to Nineveh, preach to that people, and surprisingly, they repent, and God forgives them. Now, Jonah is very upset. How is it possible that God has forgiven the oppressor of Jonah's people? Jonah asks God to kill him because why That's should I live? So from a psychoanalytic perspective, one way of looking at the myth is to look at all of the characters and the symbols in the story as internal objects in Jonah. God and the ship and the captain and the storm and the sailors and the sea and the fish and Nineveh, all of those characters, all of those symbols in the story are internal objects in Jonah. What we see is Jonah keeping the good separate from the bad. The bad are the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the bad. And he's he, a good, Jonah, he's a he's a good object. But now, remember, the, these are internal objects in Jonah. So for Jonah, it's difficult to tolerate ambivalence, that there might be some goodness in the other. So when God forgives the Assyrian, Jonah is now facing quite a difficult moment because his identity now is threatened as a good object. When we read the story, we can feel all these intense emotions, anger and self-righteousness and a sense of injustice and wanting to die. Those feelings, in fact, are what keep in different spaces the bad and good objects. So by not being able to forgive Jonah, he continues to experience the intensity of these very aggressive feelings. It illustrates maybe how confrontation within within their internal bad object can lead to a desire to die. In some ways, the God is this instance within the psyche that could force us to see the complexity within us. Correct. And maybe involuntarily, the Bible is portraying how a religious voice can actually lead people into some kind of crazy state because it forces to integrate abruptly the conflicts within them. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's not even a conflict, it's split. The conflict isn't experienced as such. Yes, Forcing someone to integrate but not working through may lead to craziness. It might not be what the people who wrote the Bible intended to say, but it is indeed very interesting from that point of view, looking back with our knowledge today through psychoanalysis. Do you think that psychoanalysis could help us get a sense of what some would characterize as a splitting that we see in in the U.S., especially now with the Trump administration? I think when we're talking about the polarization, the we observe in the United States right now, left and right, good and bad. The other is the bad. I am the good. We're talking about splitting. 
Yes. And therefore... Uh, They're all rapists. Yes. We are facing at the social level a process of splitting that we as psychoanalysts need to ponder what ways we can offer some insight on how to resolve the splitting. What strikes me is how when in Charlottesville there were violence provoked by neo-Nazi, the president of the United States mentioned that there were fine people in both sides. One could think that it is a way to reduce the splitting, to say, oh, well, they are good people on the progressive side and good people on the Nazi side. And I find that actually it hurts the process of forgiveness. It goes against it because it does not recognize the aggressor as Correct. such. So therefore you are imposing a, let me use the word, fake resolution of the splitting. And maybe in some ways Trump is playing God is saying that the Assyrian are actually good people. They are good people. And it's impossible to digest because mm. they were the aggressor. Yeah. And to go back to what we were talking before, forgiveness is not the erasure of the aggression and the aggressor. That is perhaps what happens in the religious setting, but not in the psychoanalytic setting. By not being able to recognize the aggressor as such, you create a polarization because you can't help people integrate in a safe way their own aggression. It creates a sense of confusion. If we suppress the aggression and then we're not working through and therefore aggression cannot be transformed. Now let's move on to the final part of our podcast on reading recommendations. I would like to recommend Ferenczi, Confusion of Tongues. It is a well-known article, the last one he presented publicly. To me, Ferenczi was a very uh, important author because he brought a humanistic understanding of psychoanalysis that maybe Freud was not very expressing so much in his writings. And there's another article I would like to suggest. It's called The Long Shadow, Bruce Perry on the Lingering Effects of Childhood Trauma. You will find it in The Sun magazine. It is not psychoanalytic per se. Bruce Perry is a neuroscientist, but the article is just great. I think it can be used in a psychoanalytic way. It's really a wonderful article about how trauma influences the psyche. There are some papers and a book that I would like to recommend. There is a book that was edited by a psychoanalyst, Alexander Wagner, in conjunction with Karen Coney, who is the director of the Veralist Center, and an artist, Matthew Buckingham. And they look at forgiveness from different perspectives, featuring essays and interviews, poetry and digital collage by people like Julia Kristeva and Mark Godfrey and Greg Bordowitz. So it's a, it's a wonderful book that is visual and it's written and it's quite an opportunity to explore forgiveness from different perspectives, including psychoanalytic perspective. I recommend the chapter by Julia Kristeva. And so Alexander Wagner being a member of MPAP. Of MPAP. And... In 1924, Theodor Reich, who in fact became the founder of MPAP, presented a series of lectures in Vienna, which led to the publication of his book, The Compulsion to Confess. Later on, in 2006, uh, Morton Israel wrote a paper on which he presents Theodor Reich's ideas on symptoms as confession. The paper is titled Theodor Reich on Psychoanalysis and the Unconscious Compulsion to Confess. 
the summary of Reich's ideas are, number one, that the symptom takes on the character of the confession because we call as statements about impulses or drives which are felt or recognized as forbidden a confession. And the symptom is established and maintains itself. It becomes a substitute formation. It's a gratification of unconscious impulses. And therefore, we speak of it as having the character of an unconscious confession. The confession is made to the psychoanalyst. Of course, because it's an unconscious confession, the symptom is experienced as suffering by the patient without being recognized by the patient as a confession. The other paper that I would like to recommend is the one by Melvin Lansky. The title of the paper is Forgiveness as the Working Through of a Splitting. He goes on the ideas that we have presented here about working through the concept of splitting, and he also talks about the possibility through psychoanalysis to create an increased variability of shame in the patient so that the patient is able to tolerate shame. And with that comes a sense of relief. The resolution of the splitting does not result in the patient's exonerating the aggressor. Thank you for listening to this podcast of discussions on psychoanalysis. We look forward to your comments and questions. You can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for discussions on psychoanalysis and you should find us. Or directly through the email discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. As we receive your comments and questions, we will respond to them in our next podcast next month. And don't forget to give us five stars on iTunes if you like the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.